the end, all of in God. We come here this day asking you to set a fire within us, to set our hearts ablaze for your love and for your grace and for your mission here on earth. Because we come here knowing that there's no place we'd rather be. There's no place. We want to come here and to worship you and to celebrate you and to thank you for the many ways that you love us, for all that you've done for us, for giving us life, for giving us purpose, for giving us new life, for giving us grace, for giving us mercy. We have come to know you. We have come to, to have a relationship with you. We have come to have our beings found in you, and there's no place we would rather be. So now set us on fire. Give us fresh portions of your spirit that we can leave from this place and tell others about your love, to tell others what you have done in our lives, to invite others to come and see what you can do for them. Set a fire within us, God, that we can't contain or control. God, we know that in calling us to this place that you've already spoken to us today. So Lord, as we turn to your word read and proclaimed, we simply ask that you continue speaking and that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Show, don't tell. In the world of literature or TV or movies, that's an important concept. If you have a character that is funny, it's not enough to just say that they're funny. You have to show them saying things. You have to show them saying funny things. If there was one redeeming thing about the Star Wars prequels, it was that we finally got to see Yoda fight. Where's Mike Finnegan? Can I get an amen? You see, in the originals, we'd heard all about how great a warrior Yoda was. But all we saw was this feeble old Jedi. Then in the second prequel, we finally got to see him fight, and it was awesome. Now, I really like the show Downton Abbey. And yes, after a couple weeks of sports movie references and now Star Wars, I'm trying to, to highbrow it a little bit. I like the show Downton Abbey on PBS. But if I'm honest, I struggled with most of the first season. Because Lady Mary, who was supposed to be one of the main characters, a protagonist, someone we liked and rooted for, but they never showed us any reason to like her, any reason to root for her. They never showed us any reason to have any fond attitudes towards her. They told us people liked her, but they never showed us any reason that we should. Now, what does any of this have to do with the Bible? Well, the last two weeks, we have gone down a theological rabbit hole. Paul has done some incredible work linking Christology, or the way we think and talk about the person of Jesus Christ, to how the Christian community at Philippi ought to relate within itself and with the world. 
It involves being obedient to Christ, holding fast to the faith and to the community, and being humble, thinking of others as more important than yourselves. Paul says that these are the things that Jesus embodied here on earth, they're the things that Jesus embodied in accomplishing our salvation, and they're things we must embody if we are to shine as lights for the world. And if Paul had a lot to say on these topics, I had even more. Pause for laughter, not needed. But Paul is done telling. In this next section, Paul has decided it's time to show the Philippian church what this looks like. Paul is going to do this by sending them two examples, two people who embody the type of life that Paul has been telling them about in the first part of chapter 2. Those two people are Timothy and Apophroditus. I think that's the second different way I've pronounced that name. I'm going for seven. And they are meant to give the Philippians inspiration and hope. Let's take a look at the whole section, and then we'll break it down from there. It's printed in your lifeline, displayed on the screen behind me. And if you need a Bible and don't have a Bible, we give them out for free in the cafeteria. Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epiphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to, sp to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. This morning I want to talk about these two individuals, what inspiration they would have provided the Philippians, what inspiration they can provide us, and the importance of having people in the church and in the faith to look up to. But this is also a point in the letter where we can touch on some of the finer points that you'd certainly get in a small group Bible study, but don't always necessarily get in a sermon as they're more fun information for fun information's sake. We'll start off this morning with the cool tidbits and then build from there. Now we've talked a lot in the past few weeks about how Paul is in prison but we have never talked about where Paul is in prison. Partly because we don't really know. Paul never mentions it. But information from this section can help us with some clues as we talk about where Paul is as he's writing his letter. You see, Paul in this section is he's mentioning a lot of movement. Paul's talking about having Timothy wait and see what happens with Paul, then sending Timothy to Philippi, 
and after a bit of time returning back from Philippi to Paul. Paul implies that the Philippians knew of his situation, they knew of his imprisonment, that they sent Epaphroditus to him. Epaphroditus became ill. Word came to the Philippians of his illness. And then word came from Philippi to Paul that the Philippians were distressed about the illness of Epaphroditus. I'm really doing, really doing great with this pronunciations. Now this is a lot of communication in a pre-Twitter world. Because you couldn't just pull out your phone and update your Facebook status. Epaphroditus, feeling kind of ill, sad face emoji. You couldn't take out, you couldn't send a little text. All of this had to be carried back and forth by a person walking between the two places. So what this tells us is that Paul is in prison fairly close to Philippi. One of the hypotheses is that he is imprisoned in Rome because earlier in the letter he has talked about members of the Praetorian Guard coming to the faith. And the Praetorian Guard, we know from the movie Gladiator, protected the Roman emperor in Rome. But it was also a word that could have been used for any guard in a governor's house. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the capital Rome. It could be any regional capital. So we could be looking at a... Rome was close enough to Philippi that it could have been Rome for the distance traveled. But it also could have been a closer Greek city that was a county seat, let's call it, for the area. Uh, the two leading candidates for that are Ephesus or Corinth. The distance leans probably towards one of those Greek cities. Don't know if you find it interesting. I kind of do. I read about it. I give it to you. Next, I want to talk about the composition of the letter. And if you thought the distance and geography lesson was a little... Well, we'll see how you'd like this one. Now, if you've done any extracurricular reading into scholarly opinion of the letters of Paul and the letters that we have in our New Testament, you'll discover quickly that scholars debate whether the one letter of Paul's presented to us in the Bible was originally one letter or if it was a composition of different letter fragments. I bring this up now because those scholars that are in, saying, that are in favor of saying that Philippians is a combination of letter fragments would say that this point where we are at now is the end of the first letter fragment, and that what we'll talk about next week is the beginning of a different letter fragment. Why would people suggest that what is presented to us as one letter is in fact not? Part of what leads scholars down these rabbit holes is a stark change in topic or in style or in tone. What they'll say is that what Paul is talking about in the next chapter is so wildly different from what he's been talking to up until now that there's no way it could have been a part of the same letter. They'd also suggest that for Philippians, Paul typically ends letters with travel plans. And here he is talking about travel plans when it's clear he has more to say later. This would have been a bizarre way of writing for Paul. Now, as I've hinted, I think there are important reasons why Paul would choose to bring up Timothy and Epaphroditus here, and that he's making theological and, and important points within the letter, um, absent of any sort of 
multiple fragment controversies. But for those scholars, they find those reasons unconvincing. Now let me tell you, I have read many a long, dry book on composition, setting, and authorship of Paul's letters. So I know exactly what you're thinking right now. What's the point? Can I get an amen on a what's the point? What's at stake? Now I bring this up because I don't think there should be a firewall between what scholars write about the Bible and what we talk about the Bible in church. I, all information is good information, mostly. But I also, uh, for the most part, agree that these discussions can get dry quickly. Reading the room. There's a lot of scholarship that goes into trying to get inside the Bible and figure out how it came to be, who wrote what, when did they write it, what other documents did they have as they were writing it, etc. And most of those arguments just don't get me all that excited. For the most part, I have to believe that we have the Bible that God intended for us to have. That somehow God's Holy Spirit was guiding the process of authorship and composition so that God's fingerprints are somewhere on this book. And that God's Holy Spirit is intimately, powerfully involved with us as we read it today and as we seek to encounter God within its pages. But from time to time, I do think some of the discussion of composition and authorship can have some important things at stake for us for interpretive reasons. Let's assume that the letter to the Philippians that we have was always one letter. That when we then... When we see Paul talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their travel plans in this chapter, we have to pause and ask, why would Paul talk about this now? Why not save it until the very end? What bigger point could he be making? On the other hand, if these really are just a grouping of fragments that someone has pushed, mashed together, then questions of Paul's placement of, placement of this section about Timothy and Epaphroditus has no larger meaning other than his typical way of writing letters. So as we try to better understand Paul and what he's saying and why, these minor technicalities can help us shed some light. Most scholars tend to agree that Philippians is one letter. Douglas Campbell, who wrote the longest and driest book about this that I've read, uh, provides a framework in this debate that puts the burden of proof much more strongly on the multiple letter camp by using other collections of letters from antiquity that we have passed down, and then the practical difficulties of piecing together ancient letters. Uh, in other words, if you look at letters we have from Cicero, people don't chop them up and piece them together, so why would they do that with letters of Paul? And it's really hard when you're working with parchment to cut and paste, especially if you don't have paste. I thought that was funny when I wrote it. <laughs> and I find this line of logic much more compelling, especially when it forces us to ask ourselves questions like why would Paul be talking about travel plans of his associates immediately on the heels of a deeply theological conversation? And even more especially when we have an answer to that question. And the answer is that Paul has come to the point where it's time to show not tell. So Paul is going to send them two exemplars, two role models, 
Two people who embody the selfless love of Jesus Christ that Paul has been commending to the, to the Philippians to embody. The first is Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come too. Last week, we talked about the possibility that word had gotten to Paul that the Philippians were grumbling about the impact Paul's absence was having on the community. Namely, that if Paul had been there, they wouldn't be facing such factions or fracturing or defections. <clears throat> it seems that this hypothesis might be correct. As Paul says, he intends to send Timothy in order to care for the Philippian church and to cheer them up. And in order to make this case, Paul writes a recommendation to the Philippian church about Timothy. What I find interesting about the way Paul talks about Timothy is how different it is from what churches might ask for in a pastor. What makes for a good pastor? A skilled orator, a gifted teacher, a visionary leader, competent administrator, effective organizational communicator, spiritual and moral exemplar. And yet none of those things are what Paul says of Timothy. I find it very interesting that Paul doesn't say, Timothy is a wonderful teacher. Or even, Timothy is a very devout and holy man. Instead, Paul says, Timothy will genuinely care about you. The definition that Paul seems to be adopting for a good pastor, and the implications is that Paul himself was like this, have more to do with sheer unselfish love than any other traits about that person. Additionally, Paul says that Timothy is unique and that others look out for their own interests, but Timothy is devoted to the interests of Jesus Christ. If you've ever wondered whether you can be a spiritual leader, Paul has two qualifications for you. Will you care about the interests of Jesus Christ over your own interests? And when, will you genuinely care for others? According to Paul, that's what it takes. Do you sincerely love Jesus, and do you sincerely love other people? And yet Paul seems to think this is unique, abnormal, not easily found among his associates. Partially, I can understand why this is the case, because I'm not sure I would always pass Paul's test. Being willing to set aside all other interests and considerations and do only what Jesus would have us do really hard. Something I rarely, if ever, live up to. And real talk, sometimes loving other people can be hard too. N not any of you, of course, but just, you know, Matt, stop talking. Um, but on the other hand, digressing. What if we were to use these as the only two benchmarks for service within the church? We want to start some new small groups this fall. Will you be willing to be a small group leader. Well, Pastor Matt, you know I'd love to. 
But in your sermons, you seem to know so much about the Bible and the historical context of everything and theology and stuff. Why, thank you. And I just don't know that much. Do you love Jesus? Do you love other people? You're hired. That can go for really anything we as a church do. Do you love Jesus? Do you love other people? We have places to get you plugged in. And if you truly love Jesus, and if you truly love other people, you'll want to be involved working to help, this, help people change their lives through encounters with Jesus Christ. This, friends, was what Timothy did. Paul tells us nothing more other than that he will genuinely love and care for the members of the church at Philippi, and that he cares about the interest of Jesus more than his own interests. And those two facts alone make him worthy to be thought Paul's son, as Paul's pro protege, to be the one that Paul would send when he can't go himself. How could you embody those two qualities more in your life? What would it take? And what difference would it make in your spiritual lives and in the lives of those around you? Let's now turn to Epaphroditus. I skipped over that, the first P. Epaphroditus. Say it with me. Epaphroditus. There's a secret to saying names in the Bible. You just go at it with gusto and people think you know what you're talking about. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. N.T. writes the British Anglican New Testament scholar, tells the story of a physics class he took. On a test, the professor asked why it is that human beings have two eyes. He says, of course, the answer is that we need two eyes in order to see in three dimensions, in order to have proper perspective. There was a student, however, who wrote the following. We need two eyes so that we can see twice as far. Plus this way, if something happens to the first eye, you still have another one. And T. Wright says that the professor was so enamored with that answer, he read it aloud in class. Then N.T. Wright pivots to talk about Paul's discussion of both Timothy and Epaphroditus. On the one hand, you could say that Paul sends both of them to Philippi so that there could be double the effect and inspiration. And so that if one got delayed or waylaid, Paul would still have a backup. But N.T. Wright argues that their dual inclusion shows the full perspective of Paul's character. 
N.T. Wright says that Paul's sending of Epaphroditus shows the depths of Paul's caring and love for the Philippian church. The little paragraphs about Timothy and now on Epaphroditus are enormously important in helping us get to Paul and, to, and his work and his feelings and emotions and put them in their true perspective. Paul writes often about deep, dense, solid, abstract theology. And now here, Paul writes as a human being. I'm sure Paul was overjoyed to have Epaphroditus sent to him in Paul's hour of need and sorrow. Paul was in prison. Paul was lonely. And the Philippians sent him a friend. And that friend became deeply ill. Not only did news of this deeply distress the Philippians, it deeply distressed Paul. And now Paul is willing to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians in order to bring them joy and to bring them peace. But remembering that Paul is in prison, he probably could use some friends. He could probably use some company. And yet rather than keep those few people he had close to him close to him, Paul thinks of the Philippians as being more important than himself, so he sends Epaphroditus back home. He models the type of selfless love that he has been talking about. He shows them what humility looked like and what humility can mean for a community. In light of all this, my friends, my question to you this morning is this. Are you telling people about the gospel or are you showing them the gospel? Are you telling people what it means to follow Jesus or are you showing them what it means to follow Jesus? Are you telling people about the grace and love of God or are you showing them the grace and love of God? Telling people is important, but there comes a point where you have to show. You can't just tell. So which are you? I'm going to let this sink in a little bit. Which one of these are you? What would it look like for you to show the gospel in your life? What more could you be doing? What is one thing, one thing that you could do today, this morning, this afternoon, to show someone the gospel? And what is one thing that you could do when you go to work on Monday or when you get back to your weekday routine that will show someone the gospel? Here's what I want us to do this morning. I want you to take your, find your lifeline. We have a back page intentionally left blank for notes or other things. I want you to write down one thing that you can do today to show someone the gospel. And I want you to write down one thing that you can do tomorrow at work, tomorrow in your, your weekday, normal weekday routine, something you can do this week. And then I want you to take your lifeline home, and I want you to put it in some place that you're going to find it on Wednesday. I, I have places in my house. I've got places where if I need to find it later that day, I put it there. If I want it to get lost for a little bit, there are places in our house we know we can put things to get lost for a little bit, right? Am I the only one? 
It's all my kitchen table. It's just different piles on my kitchen table. Put it in a place you know you're going to find it on Wednesday. And then ask yourself, did I do it? Did I do one thing to show someone the gospel? And when we come back next Sunday, let's all have done one thing to show rather than tell someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, the Bible is chock full of words and phrases and sentences and admonishments telling us that it's not enough to talk. It's not enough to tell. We got to do something. We can't just be hearers of the word or tellers of the word. We have to be doers of the word, James says. And now here Paul is, done talking about the grace and love of Jesus Christ and putting the grace and love of Jesus Christ into action, pointing to people who embody that love and himself modeling that love. Help us, God, this week. Help us to start showing the gospel. Let our lives, let our lives preach so that by our actions and through our love, someone might come to know you. God, there's one thing that we can do this week, and we know it. We know it. There's one thing we can do that you're going to put on our hearts. Help us to be bold for you and do that one thing. And then bring us back here next week so we can joyfully talk about the ways that we saw you work in the world. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Blessed be your name, the land that is plentiful, where streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, Still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name.